understanding of the relationship between human beings and God. This earth-shattering discovery led Luther to question for the next two years the excesses and corruption he saw in the Roman Catholic Church at that time. On October 31st, 1517, Luther nailed his famous 95 thesis to the, the door of the church in Wittenberg. Basically, 95 statements. And now, it's good to keep in mind that Luther was a trained Roman Catholic priest. He had no intention of trying to start a new denomination. He was simply trying to reform the ideas and practices of the Roman Catholic Church. But that simple act of nailing that document to the door almost acted like a fuse, lighting a match to a black powder fuse. And things in European culture had been building for probably 150 years, and that was the spark that caused it to explode. Now, many of us studied history in high school, and uh, depending on the quality of the teacher you had, you might think history equals boring. Well, no, that is not true. And what I hope for all of us to discover over the next seven weeks is that the major points of the Protestant Reformation, they certainly aren't boring, and they certainly aren't irrelevant to your life and mine. In fact, they're vitally important. And as we go back and look over those things, and as we look over 500 years of history, we're going to see the wonderful positive aspects and we're going to see some of the negatives where it's been taken to excess. But the one thing that comes out loud and clear through all of this is that God was acting in a new way to save people in every age and in every place. So what was Luther's incredible discovery that totally transformed him? And I'm actually ended up transforming our world. In order to do that, we need just a few really helpful pieces of the story so we can understand how and what God revealed to him. And it was actually in the first chapter of the book of Romans, verses 14 to 17. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. We're going to get there in a second. So I've entitled this first short point, History Matters. Now it's really, really important to know that Martin Luther's father was an externally stern, extremely stern and strict man. By all historical accounts, he was a bit of a jerk. He had risen out of poverty as a peasant uh, miner. He had worked in the mines, and through sheer determination and hard work, he had gotten himself out of just being a miner all the way up to owning his own foundry. And so the iron ore would come in, it would be smelted down, and uh, he would sell it. And Luther's father decided at a very young age that Martin Luther would grow up and be a lawyer so that he could make lots of money and he wouldn't have to struggle like his father had been. And so Martin Luther gets to the age where he's ready to go off and he begins attending law school. And he just finds that he hates it. He hates every minute of it. He can't stand it. But he sticks it out. He goes, this is what my dad wants me to do. This is dad's dream. I've got to do this. But he really, really hated it. And near the end of his first year, he came home and he had a talk with his dad. And uh, I think it was with a little bit of fear and trepidation. And it didn't go well. His dad absolutely lost it. Screamed and yelled at him and banished him from the family home. So that was a little bit depressing for him. 
And uh, on the walk back, a hundred miles or so to the town where he was studying, uh, he was encountered at an incredible storm. And this storm had thunder and lightning and wind and rain, and he actually thought he was going to die. And at that point, being a, uh, a good Christian boy, he pledged his life to God. And he said, God, if you can save me, I'll give my whole life to you. And so he didn't die in the storm, and he felt that was God sparing his life. And so he went back, and uh, at that point he changed, and he decided, you know what, I'm not going to go into law. Uh, Dad hates me anyways, so I am going to become a Roman Catholic monk. And so he started to do that. Now, the really interesting part is that Luther, as he began his studies, and he had been raised as a Catholic, and, and as he started his studies... Uh, he was definitely the most earnest student in the class. He was actually very bright, so he began to excel at his studies. And then he realized that the more he read Scripture, the more he celebrated the Mass, the more he understood, the more he realized he was in violation of what God wanted. And he was, became very acutely aware that he was a sinful man. And so, uh, in Roman Catholic uh, practice, one of the ways that you deal with your sin is you go and confess it. And that's one of the things that probably, in terms of the Protestant Reformation and not wanting to be Catholic, we've lost a little bit of that. And there's great joy and power in confessing to each other our sins. Uh, But Martin Luther was an extreme. And, And so, there's kind of a humorous story where he would go in and he would confess everything he could think of that he had ever done wrong. And he would create these huge long lists. And there's one really hilarious story where he goes in and the poor priest that he was confessing to, he was in the confessional booth for three hours. The guy was like worn out. He's like, please stop. And finally he's done and he leaves. And uh, Martin Luther makes it about 30 steps. He goes, shoot, there's one more thing. And he goes back. And the guy says, Martin Luther, don't come back here until you've done something really awful worth confessing. He goes, you're driving me crazy. But he just had this horrendous, overwhelming sense of his own sinfulness. And he realized that in terms of God's holiness, he had violated it. He was in violation of God. And he didn't know what to do. Finally, one of his teachers, after watching Martin Luther kind of wrestle and struggle and go through this soul anguish, he said, you know what you need to do? You need to pursue what's been happening in the Catholic Church for the last 200 years is a movement called mysticism. And Christian mysticism was really the idea that if we focus all of our energy on loving God, Loving God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, if we focus all of our attention and effort on loving God, everything else will take care of itself. And so Martin Luther said, okay, this has got to be better than going to the confessional booth for three hours. So he poured himself into that and he, he tried to love God. But he realized that his entire understanding of God was a lot like his father. That he pictured God as a really angry guy up in the sky with a huge stick ready to beat him. And after hours and hours and hours in prayer, he realized that what he felt for God was not love, but in fact, hatred. 
He was scared of God. He hated God. Justo Gonzalez, a historian, writes, For Luther, there was no way out of such difficulties. In order to be saved, one must confess one's sins. And Luther had discovered that in spite of his best efforts, his sin went far beyond what he could confess. If, as they, the mystics, claimed, it sufficed to love God, that was no great help for Luther had to acknowledge that he could not love the God that demanded an account of all of his actions. Throughout it all, Luther was very bright, and he excelled in his studies to the point of completing a doctorate in theology. And he was sent to the new University of Wittenberg in Germany. And the great discovery came in 1515 when Luther began lecturing to his students on Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And as he was preparing his lessons, he spent a lot of time in chapter 1. And he finally came to verses 14 through 17, and it just turned his entire world upside down. And I thought we could take a look today. There's been several wonderful documentaries produced on Martin Luther. One was done by uh, PBS, public broadcaster in the United States a few years ago. And uh, the narrator of the whole thing is Liam Neeson, uh, the actor. And if you're a fan of action films, you know that when Liam Neeson says something, you better listen up because he's going to find you. All right, so we're going to shut down the lights. Dan's going to crank up the sound for us, and uh, Caleb's going to help us uh, take a look at a little piece of a documentary on the life of Martin Luther. He threw himself into his work, studying not only the standard Latin texts of the church, but also reading them in new Greek and Hebrew editions. As he pondered, noted, and reasoned his way through his faith, Luther was struck by a building revelation. A revelation that questioned everything he had been taught about his church. Luther had been brought up to believe that the person who was saved is the person who went out and achieved salvation. He now began to realize that to receive salvation, you simply put out your empty, open hands and received this gift which God wanted you to receive. So what Luther is saying is that you don't need the institution of the church. You don't need the intercession of priests. You don't need these great papal ceremonies to get to heaven. This whole thing is not about you and the church. It's about you and God. was a revolutionary moment. For his whole life, Luther had believed that it was through the rituals of the church that he would achieve salvation. But now he realized that salvation could only take place directly between God and the individual. No earthly institution could believe for you, atone for you, or stand between you and your God. At this, I felt myself to have been born again and to have entered through open gates into heaven already.
But no one, least of all Luther himself, could have anticipated the blaze of turmoil and revolt he was about to ignite. And it did. Uh, what Luther discovered uh, set off a whole series and chain of events. And what did he discover? Well, I've entitled my second point, Earth-Shaking Good News. And throughout this, I'm going to refer to the, the title, The Gospel. And when I say The Gospel, those words literally mean The Good News. And as Luther discovers, when we truly understand and believe the Gospel, it is earth-shaking news of the best sort. Well, where was Luther reading and what did he discover? Romans 1.16, we're going to read that this morning. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. In all that I'm about to say, I'm hugely indebted to uh, Bible scholar John Stott. He's one of the best uh, pastors and scholars the Western world has ever produced. He wrote an incredible book on a commentary on the book of Romans. And this is what he says. He says, Paul surprisingly makes the declaration that he is not ashamed of the gospel, as we just read. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that he understands the message of Jesus on the cross was foolishness and a stumbling block to others. Why was it? Because two amazing things. It undermines self-righteousness, the idea that we can earn salvation, and it challenges self-indulgence. The idea that it demands that I stop living for myself and start living for God. So whenever the gospel is faithfully preached, it arouses opposition, often contempt, sometimes ridicule. So how did Paul and how should we overcome the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel? Paul tells us, he said, it's by remembering that that very same message which some people despise for its weakness, is in fact the power of God to save everyone who believes. And we've seen this in living color in our church. Ask Trevor Murray, who got baptized last fall, or Wade, Kevin, Jonathan, Haley, who were baptized in the summer, or Costa, who got baptized in the spring. The good news of the gospel is powerful, and it changes people. And Paul goes on to say that the gospel is for everyone, first for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. That word simply means non-Jew. That would be you and I and everyone else in the world who isn't Jewish. Saving faith, which is the necessary response to the gospel, is the great leveler. The ground at the foot of the cross is equal. Everyone, rich, poor, famous, educated, not educated, all of us have equal access to what Jesus did for us on the cross. And you may be saying, all right, Pastor Darren, I get it that it's for everybody, for Jew and non-Jews. But it also says, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Why is the gospel for the Jews first? Well, the Jewish people get priority because God chose them and made his covenant, his binding agreement with them. And when Paul says first for the Jews, it's actually kind of a little bit of a history record of what he would do. Paul would go to a new city in the Roman Empire, and every single place he went, the very thing, first thing he would do is he'd find the local Jewish synagogue, their house of worship, and he would go and he would start 
building relationships. He would read the Scriptures. He would explain who Jesus was and what Jesus accomplished to those Jewish people. And in almost every one of those instances, some of them would embrace it. They would say, wow, Jesus is the one. He's the Messiah we Jews have been waiting for. And some would believe. And some out of that, he would begin to form a local church. But then usually, the majority wouldn't accept the message of the gospel. And they would eventually kick Paul out. At that point, he would say, okay, I can get on with the mission Jesus called me to. I'm the apostle sent to the non-Jewish world. So first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Now we're going to move to the heart of that message in verse 17. Paul writes, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The reason that the gospel is God's saving power is that in it, God's righteousness is revealed. The righteousness that is by faith from first to last, in fulfillment of the quotation at the end by the Jewish prophet Habakkuk from the first half of the Bible, the righteous will live by faith. So that leads us to three questions about God's righteousness. Number one, what is it? When we say those words, God's righteousness, what does that mean? Well, number one, it's all of his character and all of his actions. God delights in whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, things that are excellent or praiseworthy. And out of that moral purity, God always does what is right. He acts with love and care and justice both to us as his people and all of the universe that he has created. That's why Jesus continues to fascinate people around the world. Jesus continues to fascinate those people who would describe themselves as non-believers, as really secular people. They don't accept that Jesus is who he claimed to be, God's son, but they nevertheless admire his life and teachings. That's why Jesus continues to enthrall people from world religions all over the world. They can't accept that he is who he claimed to be, but they hold his life in high esteem. The reason our world responds to Jesus like that is that Jesus is ultimately God in a body. He is what that kind of perfect righteousness, that kind of perfectness in thoughts, actions, and love looks like, played out on the ground in the nitty-gritty reality of daily life. And Jesus' brief 33 and a half years on this earth was so stinking amazing, the world still hasn't gotten over it. So that's first of all what God's righteousness means. Second of all, the righteousness of God means his saving intervention on behalf of sinful human beings. We as human beings are messed up and it doesn't take you very long to be alive to figure that one out. Just watch the news. Watch a playground. Watch kids being mean to each other. And we as adults do even a worse job. And throughout the Bible, salvation and righteousness seem to be often paired together. Psalm 98.2 says, The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. In Isaiah 45.21, God describes himself. He says, I am a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. 
And when God saves us, he overthrows the three main enemies of the human race. Sin, death, and the devil. And in Christ, God leads us to freedom and victory. And third, the righteousness of God is God's supreme achievement. God requires that we, if we are going to spend eternity with him, if we're going to see God face to face and be in his presence, God requires that we are just as morally perfect as he is. Just as perfect in our thoughts and in our actions. The only problem is that if you're a living, breathing human being past the age of five, you already know you're not perfect in your thoughts and actions. By the time you're an adult, it's a pretty long list of things you've done that have hurt yourself, hurt other people, hurt this planet that God has given us. You know you've been selfish, greedy, lustful, uncaring towards the suffering and needs of others. So we have a massive problem that we could never fix. God expects us to be totally morally perfect to stand in his presence, but we simply aren't. Nobody is. So how do we get that righteousness? How do we get God's righteousness, that perfectness in thought and deed? There's only one way. And it's the greatest trade in history. It was accomplished through Jesus Christ willingly laying down his life on a cruel Roman cross 2,000 years ago. He took all of our evil and sin and gave us in turn the moral perfectness of God to wear like a robe that perfectly covers us. Not an amazing trade. Jesus takes all of our sin and garbage and evil and gives us, in fact, God's righteousness. And it really is like a robe that we wear. And when we stand face to face with God in heaven in it for eternity, God looks at us and sees the perfectness of his son Jesus. Pastor and author Tim Keller summarizes the gospel this way. He says, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Now that our heads understand the message of the gospel, now that our heads understand Romans 14 to 1, 14 to 17, those verses that completely turn Martin Luther's understanding upside down, we need our hearts to understand that. And a guy that can help us do that is author Max Licato. He wrote a book called The Angels Were Silent. And Max Licato captures the emotion of Jesus' final night in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was put on trial the next day and ultimately crucified on that cruel Roman cross. In 2012, I got to go on a trip to Israel with a bunch of pastors, and I actually got to stand in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's a bunch of olive trees and bushes. It's kind of a slope thing, and you look across to the city of Jerusalem, and that's exactly what Jesus saw that night. Max Licato writes, It is here on the outskirts of Jerusalem that the battle will end. He sees the evil one preparing for the final encounter. The enemy lurks as a specter over the hour. Satan, the host of hatred, has seized the heart of Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, and whispered in the ear of Caiaphas, the high priest. Satan, the master of death, has opened the caverns and prepared to receive the source of light. 
hell is breaking loose. History records it as a battle of the Romans and the Jews against Jesus. It wasn't that at all. It was a battle of God against Satan. And Jesus knew it. He knew that before the war was over, he would be taken captive. He knew that before victory would come defeat. He knew that before the throne would come the cup of suffering. He knew before the light of Sunday would become the blackness of Friday. And he is afraid. What did Jesus do? He chose to pray. Jesus said, I pray for these men, these 11 disciples that you have given me, but I'm also praying for all people who will believe in me because of the teaching of these men. Father, I pray that all people who believe in me, that believe in me through their teaching can be one. And Max Licato reminds us, he says, you need to note that in his final prayer, Jesus prayed for you and I. All those people who believe in him because of his teaching, that's us. As Jesus looked up to heaven, you were in his vision. His final prayer included you. His final pain was for you. His final passion was you. He goes back to wake up his sleeping disciples, wakes them up and tells them that his soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Never has he felt so alone. What must be done, only he can do. An angel can't do it. No angel has the power to break open the gates of hell. A man can't do it. No man has the purity, the righteousness to destroy sin's claim on us. No force on earth can face the force of evil and win no one except God. His humanity begged to be delivered from what his nature as God could see. Jesus, the carpenter, kneels down and implores, ask God. He peers into the dark pit of suffering and he begs, can't there be another way? Did he know the the answer before he asked the question? Did his human heart hope his heavenly Father had found another way? We don't know. But we do know he begged for an exit. We do know there was a time when he could have, if he could have, he would have turned his back and walked away from the whole mess. But you know what? The amazing truth is Jesus couldn't turn his back and walk away. He couldn't because he looked down through history and he saw you and I. Right there in the middle of the world, which isn't fair, he saw you cast into a river of life you didn't request. You, just like him, get betrayed by those you love. He saw you with a body which gets sick and a heart which grows weak. He saw you in your own garden of gnarled trees and sleeping friends. He he saw you staring into the pit of your own failures and the mouth of your own grave. He knows what it's like to beg your heavenly Father to change his mind and hear him say gently but firmly, no. For that is what God the Father said to Jesus. And Jesus accepts the answer. The battle is won. For it was in the garden the night before he died that he made his decision. You know what the ultimate truth is? Jesus would rather to go to hell for you than go to heaven without you. That is the gospel. And that's the best news ever. Amen. The good news of the gospel transformed Martin Luther's life and it transforms our lives. It takes a lifetime to discover all the ways that it changes us. But I want to take a quick 
shot at it as we end our sermon today. My third and final point is entitled, The Gospel-Centered Life. And we pick the verses back up, Romans 1, 14 and 15. Paul writes, I am a debtor both to the Greeks and the non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. At first, that's a pretty confusing statement. How and why can Paul write of the gospel being a debt? How is good news a debt? If we step back and think for a second, though, of the two ways that we can be in debt, it becomes a little clearer. First way is the way we typically think of debt. If I come up to you and I borrow $1,000, maybe my friend Joe, I borrow $1,000 from him, I am in Joe's debt until I pay it back. That's pretty simple. We've all borrowed money from somebody at some point in our lives, and uh, if we have a mortgage, we're definitely borrowing it from the bank. But there's another way to be in debt. There's a second way to be in debt. Maybe Joe and I have a mutual friend. Our friend is rushing to catch an airplane, and I happen to be walking by on the street as he's loading up his suitcase in his car. And he sees me and he says, Hey, this is fantastic. What great timing. He said, I have $1,000 that I need to get to our friend Joe. Can you give it to him? And I say, Yeah, I'll do that for you. I'll take that $1,000 and get it to Joe. Now, for the next couple hours, as I take that $1,000, as I get back home, as I find my car, as I give Joe a call, and I finally go over and deliver that money to him, during that period of a couple hours, I am actually in Joe's debt. Until I give him that money, I'm in his debt. And that's the way Paul is saying he is in debt with the good news of the message of the gospel. He is eager to preach the gospel to the people of Rome. And it is, in fact, Jesus who has made Paul a debtor. Jesus has given Paul a treasure of incalculable worth, the amazing message of the gospel, the life-transforming good news. And Paul is carrying it around, wanting to hand it over to those who desperately need it. And you know what? It's exactly the same for you and I. If we have said yes to following Jesus, we have a debt to those around us. We are carrying around the thing of immense and worth and value. And we have a debt to proclaim the good news of the message of the gospel to those who don't yet know it. Our friends, our family, our co-workers, the people of Cedar, Saltair, Ladysmith, Shemanus, and Crofton. Good news is for sharing. And we are under a debt and obligation to make it known. Now, how does Ocean View as a church, how do we do that? Well, our first step is to earn credibility, earn the right to even be heard in the first place. And how do we do that? By loving and serving our community. What are some common barriers for people to hear the gospel? Here's a couple that really came to my mind this week. First way that people have a barrier to the gospel is, number one, misinformation. They have a totally screwed up understanding of what the gospel actually is. Second way people have a barrier to the gospel, a bad stereotype image. They only understand the Christian faith from the terrible portrayals it usually receives in movie, movies and television. And third, 
Third common barrier people have to the gospel is a hurtful experience of the past. Maybe they were forced to go to the church. It was long and boring and the pastor was a total jerk. Hopefully that's not the case here. People have barriers. But loving and serving people begins to break down that barrier, begins to break down those walls, that resistance. And we've really seen that begin to happen in our church and our community this past year. As I mentioned, we were able to help scholarship 78 kids to Camp Quanos. Those kids had an amazing experience, an amazing week. They've come home, they've told their families about it, and that gift is starting to make a difference. Last end of November last year, we were able to partner with Bethel Church here in town, put on the Russ Rosine Christmas Tales outreach event. 400 people from our town showed up, heard the Christmas story. We served them, ran an amazing gingerbread contest, had an incredible time. Our downtown business association puts on our old-time Christmas event every year, and again, they asked us to help. We put on our fourth annual egg or biannual eggs benefit event in June. We ran games at Ladysmith Days and all of those collective efforts as a church begin to soften hearts and break down barriers. And what our hope as a church is, is that as you build friendships with your friends, neighbors, and co-workers, those kind of actions give you a place to start, give you a, a jumping off point. And people are a little bit more open to hearing it. Now, when a pastor says, I want people to share their faith, most of us have the instant image that we need to be like the Jehovah Witnesses and go knock on people's doors and completely annoy them. I want to say loud and clear this morning, that's not what I want you to do. I, in fact, want you to build relationships with people and when God prompts you, when God leads you, when it's the right moment, that's when you can share your faith. And you know one of the most helpful things we can ever do for someone is what I said first. Clarify the message of the gospel. Most people have a very warped or, or misinformed understanding. I asked a guy this past year, I said, you explain to me what you think the central core message of the Christian faith is. And he said, well, I'm pretty sure it's something about the Ten Commandments. And I kind of patted him on the shoulder. I said, thanks, good answer, honest, you're totally wrong. Now let's hear what the real thing is. And that's honestly one of the kindest, most helpful things we can do for someone. And really, you're not being obnoxious, you're not overwhelming them, you're not preaching at them in some sort of obnoxious way. You're having a conversation and you're clarifying what the true message of the gospel is. A fantastic question is simply to ask, what do you understand the central core message of the Christian faith to be? People are free to accept it or reject it, but it's a tragedy if they reject a misunderstood caricature of what the gospel actually is about. And you know, ultimately, if someone was to reject you because you asked a gentle, clarifying, inquisitive question built on a solid friendship, that would be really weird and really strange. It is completely their choice with no pressure. So what is it living a gospel life? It obviously affects what we talk about, what we say, 
the sharing of our faith in words, but it also affects our actions. Living a gospel-centered life should transform the actions that we are already doing in our daily lives. I'm going to take a wild guess and say this fall, you're going to eat dinner most nights this fall. Now, maybe you got a crazy busy schedule and some days you're going to skip dinner, but the vast majority, you're going to be having dinner. And you know what the good news of the gospel does? It barges into our life and it begins to transform the things that we are already doing. And at least one of those nights this fall, the gospel says to us, you should have somebody over, maybe a friend, a coworker, a neighbor, ask them to share dinner. Because you know what? Ultimately, people won't care that you know the truth of the gospel until they feel that you care because of the truth of the gospel. Think about travel. You're probably going to travel some days this fall. Maybe you have to go to Vancouver on BC Ferries, two-hour boat ride. Might be commuting with someone back and forth to work. Maybe you got to take a trip on an airplane. Hours in the air. Again, the gospel barges into our life and begins to steer all of those potential conversations towards things related to Jesus and the Christian way of life. Truly listening and truly being interested in what another person has to say is actually pretty countercultural. We live in a selfish and fast-paced life. People often don't ask about others. Again, people won't know that you won't care that you know the truth of the gospel until they feel that you care because you took the time to be interested in them. Those are two simple examples. But that's what the gospel continually does. It begins to transform the things in our life that we're already doing and give them a deeper purpose and meaning and hope. It changes the way we watch movies or listen to music. It makes us think and ponder and discuss the themes. You know what the gospel does do? It changes what we get angry about. It begins to create in us a little bit of that hunger and that thirst for God's righteousness. And when we see starving people in our world, the gospel begins to nudge our hearts and we start to get upset and angry that people are dying of starvation. It begins to get us angry that human beings are trafficked and sold in our world. It begins to turn our hearts around. The good news of the gospel changes everything. A fresh understanding of it changed Martin Luther and eventually resulted in him being the flashpoint for the Protestant Reformation. A fresh understanding of the gospel can be a personal reformation for you and I, and it can change everything in our lives. Amen? All right, we're going to call our worship team back.